Good morning, Bridge. It is a beautiful day today. The sun is shining, the weather is still warm, and we are here to worship God together today. Today we are continuing on in the book of Matthew, starting in chapter 21. You can go ahead and turn there now. Oh, and Bridge kids are dismissed. If you are K through fifth grade, you may now go and learn about God in an age-appropriate context. <laughs> well, every now and then I hear in the news about an old lady who has decided to leave her millions of dollars to her pet cat. You ever hear those stories? Yeah? Yeah, you're in favor of that, Nora? Oftentimes, the lady has lived alone for most of her life. She doesn't really like people. And her husband died a while ago, and it's just turned her a cat. And so, of course, everything goes to the cat. But sometimes, the lady is not alone. Sometimes, the lady has children. And whenever I hear about situations like this, I always wonder, what would it be like to be one of those kids? I mean, how would you feel? You'd be sitting around in your apartment wondering, did mom love the cat more than me? Because if you're someone's son or daughter, you have a reasonable expectation to rank at least above the cat. And to have everything go to the cat, to be disinherited, something must have gone terribly wrong. Or imagine this situation. One night, middle of the night, you wake up and you're getting a phone call from the United Kingdom of all places. And it's the queen, her royal majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. She's calling from Buckingham Palace and she wants to let you know that she has decided to name you as her successor. Now think for a second about how the British would feel about that. This would be a major surprise, total upset, complete shock. Who even is this person? Queen Tamara? She just showed up. How is this possible? Is she even British? What gives her the right? It's this kind of surprise, this shock, that I want you to have in the back of your mind as we read today's passage. Because today we're looking at three parables, three stories from Jesus himself. And in each of these stories, Jesus is talking to a group of people who, more than anyone, expected to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus was talking to the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite of his time. And what did they think? They thought they were the true sons of Abraham. The true children of Israel, they had the temple, they had the law of Moses, the Holy Land. They were the rightful heirs. But in these three stories, Jesus lays out the surprising news that these men, these supposedly rightful heirs, would not be receiving the kingdom of heaven. We'll start today off by just reading the first story, starting in verse 28. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word, Matthew 21, verse 28. What do you think? 
a man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Parable number one is a simple story with a simple lesson, one that I'm sure you parents know all too well. The lesson, what your kids say they're going to do is not always what they end up doing. Am I right? One son says he's going to work in the vineyard and doesn't do it. The other son says he's not going to do it and then goes and does it. The moral of the story is so straightforward that even the chief priests and the Pharisees understand it. Jesus asked them in verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? And they respond, the first one, obviously. The one who actually ended up doing the yard work. One point to the chief priests and the elders, except what they don't realize is that in their answer, They are convicting themselves. Congratulations, chief priests. You just got played. (laughs) Jesus comes at them with a surprising twist in the middle of verse 31. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Boom. The first son, the one who does his father's will. You think that's you, chief priests and elders? Wrong. Guess what? It's actually the people you'd least expect, the kind of folks that you look down on. Verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. In other words... These leaders of Israel think they're all that in a bag of chips. They think they're the first son, the obedient son, but really, they're the son who says, yeah, sure, I'll go mow the lawn, but who won't actually get up off the couch. Instead, Jesus says here that the ones who are actually doing the will of the Father are the people you'd least expect. The lowest of the low, con artists, traitors, deviants, fornicators, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. How in the world is this possible? These people have committed unspeakable sin. They're beyond repair. And yet it's them. They're the ones who are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they listened to the message of John the Baptist. Okay, now pop quiz. What was that message? What is the way of righteousness that John the Baptist showed the prostitutes and the tax collectors? To get the answer, we need to do a little bit of recap. 
Today's passage is actually the last time in the book of Matthew that John the Baptist shows up. And to, uh, to get what's going on here, we need to go back to when we first met John, way back in chapter 3. Back in the story, before adult Jesus even comes in the scene, we get John, his crazy cousin. John, a wild man, out in the desert with one simple message. Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. What does it mean to repent? It doesn't just mean feeling sorry about bad things you've done. It's actually even more than just owning up to the consequences and taking responsibility for your actions. No, to repent is to change your mind, to turn from your wicked ways. Repentance is doing a complete 180, running away from sin and running towards God's way. Because when the king of heaven comes and the kingdom of heaven is near, you better be doing things his way. And you know what? People did it. They repented. The worst sinners, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they believed John's message, that God's kingdom was coming. And they changed their minds, they changed their whole lives, they repented. They said, how I've been living is wrong. I, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm sick of it. I want to do things God's way. This is the way of righteousness, to repent, to say God's way is better. And so Jesus says to these people, the ones who repent, you guys are the ones who are going to enter the kingdom. But not everyone responded to John with repentance. Jesus says the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of Israel, they went out to see John, and even when they saw it, they did not believe and change their minds. Why? because they didn't see the need. They thought, we're Abraham's children. We're, we're the true sons of Israel. We are Gentiles, we keep the law. Us and God, we're good. They presumed upon their status, upon their own sense of holiness. They didn't understand that in the presence of a holy and righteous God, even religious leaders are not much better than prostitutes and tax collectors. And so to the Pharisees and Sadducees, John had the same message. Repent. He says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And so in today's passage, Jesus convicts the leaders of Israel of doing the same thing that they've been doing since the beginning of the book of Matthew. They heard the tornado warning, but they didn't think it applied to them. And so they didn't take cover, they didn't go down to the basement, and they're going to be swept away. And Bridge, this message isn't just for them. If you are a sinner, and we all are, don't fool yourself into thinking you aren't in grave danger. Your job, your family, your neighborhood, your ethnicity, your friends, your party, your opinions, none of those can save you at the end of the day. You say, but I go to church. I pray. I, I read the Bible. I'm involved. I live right. Great. Good for you. 
But even these things won't do you much good when the kingdom of heaven comes. Because the fact is that no matter how good things look on the outside, beneath the wallpaper, under the carpet, we are all not much different from the worst of sinners. The prostitutes and the tax collectors understood this. They knew full well that they weren't living right. People made sure they knew that. All the fine, upstanding folks who would avoid them in the streets, who who wouldn't even speak with them, they made sure that they knew that they were sinners. But the irony is that because of this, because they saw clearly the depths of their own depravity, they actually had a kind of advantage over the chief priests. Their sin was so obvious that they couldn't fool themselves. They knew they needed help. They needed to repent. And so repent, they did. Brothers and sisters, don't fool yourselves. Don't cover up your sin. If you have sin in your life, recognize that you are going the wrong way and repent. Change your mind. Do the Father's will. Our first point today, don't assume you're good. Repent. Bridge, I urge you to listen to this message because the situation is actually and truly very serious. We are not just like the lazy son of the first parable, sitting on a couch, not doing his chores. More than just disobedience, we are engaged in open rebellion against God, our master. Which brings us to our second story today. Jesus is about to kick things up a notch. Look at verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Can you imagine this happening today? Imagine the headlines. Police are still on the hunt for local Burger King manager who has refused to pay rent and fatally wounded several regional directors, including the CEO's son, the Burger Prince. It's wild. This is crazy. How could they think they'd get away with this? Why not just pay rent? Why kill the CEO's son? Why? These tenants are rogues. They, they, they are comic book villains. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they're hearing the story from Jesus and they're getting mad. This demands justice, they think. And so when Jesus asked them in verse 40, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They, the chief priests, say to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus must have smiled at this point because the irony is so thick. To see why, let's unpack this story. Who is the master? What is the vineyard? What is the fruit? Who are the servants? How about the tenants? 
What about the son? The book of Isaiah, chapter 5, gives us a clue to all of this. In that chapter, Isaiah tells us about a man who digs out a vineyard, clears it of stones, plants it with vines, builds a watchtower in it, hews out a wine vat, and waits for it to yield fruit. Does that sound familiar? Sounds an awful lot like the master in this parable. In verse 7 of that same chapter of Isaiah, chapter 5, we're given this key verse. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In other words, the master of the house, it's God. God, who planted his vineyard, Israel, who filled it with vines, the people of Israel, so that they might produce fruit. What fruit? The fruit of justice and righteousness. You with me so far? So then who are these tenants who dare to seize the vineyard, abuse the master's servants, and even kill the master's son? These are the leaders of Israel themselves. The very people Jesus is talking to right now, those who over and over and over again, over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, killed the Lord's servants, his prophets, and who are going to kill the Lord's son, Jesus Christ, the man who is talking to them right now. And just like the tenants in the parable, the chief priests and the elders are going to think that they have won. The vineyard is theirs. But you know what? They're the real fools. The master will never let them do this. The very same justice that they are now calling down upon the tenants is the judgment that they will receive. While this parable ends there, with the son dying, Jesus goes on to add another mysterious note. He says in verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, more literally, a nation and ethnicity, producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Okay, now we're really mixing up our pictures. We're talking about vineyards, and now about stones, and then back to fruits, and then stones again. What's Jesus talking about? What's going on? What is this stone? The Apostle Peter has an answer for us. Sometime after the events of the book of Matthew, Peter is going to go and stand before the very same chief priests and elders that we're talking about today, and he's going to declare to them these words in the book of Acts, chapter 4. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. 
In this second parable, the son is killed by the tenants and he stays dead. That's where the parable ends. But the real son, Jesus Christ, the stone that is rejected, he will not stay in the grave. God the Father is going to raise his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And he will become the cornerstone, the foundation block upon whom the kingdom of God is established. A royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation. And who is going to be part of this nation? The prostitutes and the tax collectors. Those who are built upon the cornerstone as those built up into a spiritual house. Those who produce the kingdom's fruits of justice and righteousness. Those who do not hold back from God what is his, but who give God their whole lives and do that justice. Friends, if you, like the tax collectors, know that you're a sinner, if you see the depths of your own depravity, And you want to turn from that, to repent, to reject your old way, and to run towards God's way. If you believe the kingdom of heaven is near, then I have good news. The kingdom of God is already among you. The kingdom is here because our king has come, Christ the king. And he lives in us if you accept him. If John the Baptist called people to turn from their old ways, It was so that they might turn to Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to turn from your sins and turn towards the cornerstone, God's Son, Jesus Christ, then please, I urge you, today is the day. You can talk to me or Brandon or anyone around you right after service, and we would love to tell you more about the Jesus that we serve. Unfortunately, although they heard this warning, The leaders of Israel did not heed this call. Verse 45 says this, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Oh, that's us? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Talk about irony. Jesus has just told them that they, the builders, the tenants, are going to reject the son. And they, because of that, they will be crushed. But instead of listening to Jesus, instead of turning from their ways and and getting a wake-up call and being like, oh my goodness, what am I doing? They immediately start seeking out a way to arrest Jesus, held back only by the court of public opinion. Jesus has given them full notice, and yet they are bent on rushing towards their doom, which brings us to our second point for today. Point number two. Don't ignore the call. Turn to Jesus. Because friends, if you do not know Jesus, if like the Pharisees, you hear this invitation but you don't respond, then Jesus foretells your doom as well in our third and final parable today. In the first parable, the father asks his son to tend his vineyard. In the second parable, the father sends his son to collect the vineyard's fruits. And now in our final parable, with all the fruits of the harvest, the father is going to throw his son a wedding feast. Please turn with me to chapter 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. 
and sent his sons to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Okay, so right off the bat, some of this is pretty clear. If Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, who's the king? It's God. And if God's the king, then who is his son? It's Jesus, the bridegroom. Revelation 19, the angel there tells us, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when we invite people to accept Jesus into their hearts, we're invited, we're inviting them to a wedding feast. When the king's servants, whom he sends to call everyone on the invite list, says, come, the time is here. What they're saying is, let's party. The wedding's here. It's time. I was just at a wedding yesterday, Sam and Jaden's. It was great. Brandon preached. It was awesome. And then after, after the ceremony, what did we do? We partied. We had a wedding feast. But unfortunately, to this wedding feast, many will not come. And so the king gives them a second chance in verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. Look guys, come on, I, I, I bought prime rib. It's been cooking in the oven, six hours, 250 degrees, the table is set, everything is ready, let's eat. For me, this would not be a hard decision. You know me. If there's free food, I'm there. God's not asking us to come and do hard manual labor. He's inviting us to a feast, to a buffet. And yet so many ignore him. He's got to ask him twice. He's pleading with them to come, come to the wedding feast. But for some reason, these wedding guests are not having it. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now, when I got married four months ago to my beautiful wife, Kirsty, we had a lot of people decline our invitation for any number of reasons. But nothing like this happened to us. No, nobody killed the, the messenger. Once more, Jesus makes the story go wild off the rails to illustrate just how crazy these people are being. Some respond to this generous invitation with cruel, unwarranted hostility, seizing the king's servants and killing them. This is what the chief priests and the elders are doing, responding to the king's summons with nothing short of rebellious aggression. And you might think, well, at least that's not me. I haven't killed anyone. But others who were invited to the feast just had better things to do. They had urgent business to attend to. They had to take care of the family farm. They got deadlines and mouths to feed and bills and overtime. They don't have time for the wedding. They don't have time for Jesus. They got more important fish to fry. And the sad thing is that whether you're like the Pharisees and you openly oppose God or you just simply ignore him, the end result is the same. You won't be going to the wedding. If you reject the king, then the king will reject you. Verse 7. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. 
And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so with all the noble guests destroyed and burned, those who had rejected Jesus, God the Father, the King, sends his servants to invite the commoners, the lowly, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, fishermen, to come to his wedding feast. If we are God's servants, this is our task, to spread the invite far and wide to everyone, and I mean everyone, people high and low, even those who are bad as well as good, people of every ethnicity, to all the nations, all of them invited to come to this wedding feast. We are called to make Christ known to everyone. And at the end of days, the king is going to come in and judge between who is and is not worthy to be there. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This man got a last-minute invitation to the royal wedding. Imagine if that were you. A last-minute invite to Harry and Meghan's big I do. Free food, free drinks. They're even going to cover your, your airline ticket. All you got to do is show up. But what if you showed up in dirty jeans and a, and a ripped T-shirt? What if you didn't have the decency to go home and change into something nice or, or at least clean? Would you be surprised if security quickly and firmly escorted you out of the building? It would still really be a free invitation. No cover charge, no hidden fees, just come. But it would come with some very reasonable expectations. If you don't prepare yourself and act like you're going to a wedding, then you have no business being at the wedding. And folks, Jesus is saying here that the kingdom of heaven is the same way. Come. Everyone, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. But come ready. Come properly clothed. How should we clothe ourselves? What do we wear to the great wedding feast of the Lamb? We don't have to guess. Revelation 19 declares this. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, yes, we are justified by faith. Our righteous deeds don't earn us an invite to the wedding. That's free. That's grace. That's the choice of the king. That's something that we could never earn. But by our righteous deeds, we demonstrate that we want to be at the wedding. We show that we truly belong in the kingdom because kingdom people live kingdom lives. 
kingdom people live kingdom lives. And so we need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We need to follow John the Baptist's words and produce the fruit of justice and righteousness. Our third and final point for today. Don't live your old life. Live like you're on the invite list. Don't live your old life. Live like you're on the invite list. If we don't do this, if we forget that we have a royal invitation, we demonstrate that we belong outside the wedding, in the outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, the rebellious city burnt to the ground, the doom of those who reject the king and the joy of his wedding feast. I'll close by saying this. In these three parables, Jesus is really calling us to do one thing, to give up our old lives, to stop being God's enemy, to change our minds, to turn in repentance, to do the Father's will, to be built upon the cornerstone, to produce the fruits of the kingdom, to accept the wedding invitation, to put on clothes of righteousness. All of this, All of these pictures, these parables are pointing us towards one thing, life in the kingdom of heaven. A life that could be yours. If you haven't accepted the invitation, today is the day. And if you have accepted the invitation, if you're going to the wedding feast, but if there's any area of your life that is not a kingdom life, I want you to think carefully. Which clothes are you wearing? Clothes of righteousness or of darkness. I urge you to put on clothes fitting for the wedding feast. Today is the day to repent. Repent and turn and find the joy that can only be found in God's kingdom. This is Jesus' invitation to you. I pray that you will accept it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for preparing for us a wedding feast. God, for planting the vineyard, for harvesting its fruits, for sending us out as servants to go invite everyone to enjoy this feast. God, we thank you for your son, the bridegroom. God, the guest of honor for whom this feast is thrown. Lord, thank you that by him we have this invite, that by his blood we are purchased. By him we are made new, God, given a new life, given new clothes. God, we pray that we would put on those clothes. God, that we would put on the clothes of justification and righteousness. God, that we would be worthy of your kingdom. God, I pray for all those here, all present, God, that all would accept your invitation, that all would live like they are on the invite list. God, would you be with us? Would you purify us, sanctify us, cleanse your church, and make us worthy of this wedding feast? We thank you. We thank you for everything. We recognize that we are in this process of being sanctified. And until the day that we get to dine with you in heaven, We do pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done.